Hi, this is Brennan Spiegel, co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. And for this month's podcast, I've got Dr. Tim Gardner with me, who is the director of pancreatic disorders at the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. And we're going to discuss the new ACG guidelines on chronic pancreatitis. So, Tim, thanks for being with us today. Brennan, it's great to be here, and really thanks for having me. Let's just get to it. This new guideline is about chronic pancreatitis, and it's a really fantastic guideline. So the first thing I'll tell our readers is we'll just touch on some of the highlights today, but it's a rich guideline full of great information and important updates, and I really recommend everyone, uh, when you have a chance, take a look at these guidelines and read them through. So before we get too far, I think it's helpful just to take a second and ask ourselves what actually is chronic pancreatitis. Now, when I was reading this updated guideline, I didn't realize sort of how much controversy there is about how to actually define chronic pancreatitis uh, and some of the issues that have come up over the years in crafting a diagnosis or a definition. So tell us a little bit about what is the latest thinking on what is chronic pancreatitis? It was very challenging to start just because the definition has been so in flux over about the past five years. And this really set us back a little bit, a few months, to try to come up with the basic thing, which is how do you define chronic pancreatitis? So for years, really dating back to the early 1900s till 2016, chronic pancreatitis was defined using what we say is a traditional clinical pathologic approach, which looked at typical signs and symptoms and really tried to define pancreatitis based on morphology. Uh, so it was initially defined for years as a continuing inflammatory disease of the pancreas. And we talked about irreversible morphologic change and typically causing pain and a permanent loss of uh, function. And that was a great definition, except for what we found was that chronic pancreatitis oftentimes doesn't have typical morphologic change so that we couldn't use cross-sectional imaging, et cetera, to define what we called earlier minimal change chronic pancreatitis. So in 2016, there was a new definition of chronic pancreatitis proposed and adopted by a lot of the major pancreas societies. And that definition differed in that it wasn't so reliant on morphologic features, but instead was defined as a disease of pancreatic atrophy, fibrosis, pain syndromes, with calcifications, pancreatic excrement dysfunction, endocrine dysfunction, and uh, dysplasia. And it wasn't something that necessarily relied, as I said, on morphologic changes to meet that diagnosis. And one of the issues we had with the guidelines was that just about all the research and the papers that had been done really relied on that former model. So we had to not only use the guidelines to talk about the research that had been in that previous model, but also try to highlight this new mechanistic definition of chronic pancreatitis and try to put in there uh, the studies that had been done under the guise of that definition. And so it made it a little bit challenging. It took us about three years to get this guideline out. So this kind of gets at some of the difficulties clinically in diagnosing chronic pancreatitis. So, you know, for example, you know, we may not see calcifications, right? That's part of the the diagnosis, but it's not certainly necessary, is it, to be able to diagnose chronic pancreatitis? No, and that was one of the real challenges because, again, the prior definition really relied on cross-sectional imaging or EUS findings to, to make the diagnosis. And the other real challenging thing with chronic pancreatitis is that there really is not a diagnostic gold standard. 
it's kind of one of these things that, you know, you know it when you see it, but it's really hard to define and, and really get a good definition. So we struggled a little bit with coming up with what is the gold standard. And at the end of the day, we really said, listen, it comes back to histology really as your gold standard, but histology is not a perfect diagnostic criteria. And there are going to be patients who have chronic pancreatitis who don't necessarily have histologic evidence. And that's where we used, again, cross-sectional imaging, EUS, et cetera. Yeah, so let's talk about that sort of algorithm of imaging and other diagnostic tests. So in the guideline, there's a figure. It's figure one, for those of you following at home. And it is a step-by-step guide for making the diagnosis in patients where there's clinical suspicion of chronic pancreatitis. And as you mentioned, you know, cross-sectional imaging has always been the first step, and it still is the first step in the current guidelines. But if you do a cross-sectional image, you see calcifications, you see obvious damage in, in the, you know, parenchyma, that's one thing. But sometimes the imaging is not obviously consistent with chronic pancreatitis. So you're still left with this clinical situation where you suspect it, but the CT or MR isn't obviously revealing because there could be this early change. It's not yet showing itself or revealing itself uh, on imaging. So what's the next step? You mentioned endoscopic ultrasound. At what point should we turn to EUS? The first thing you have to do is you have to have a suspicion of the disease. So classic Mm -hmm. clinical symptoms, which we're all familiar with. If a patient has excrement insufficiency, for example, that you've been able to prove if they have diabetes, again, or a family history that's consistent. So you have to have a suspicion. And you go ahead and you do your cross-sectional image, which in the guidelines was either a CT scan or an MRI, and that's negative. And so you say, okay, there's no stones, there's no classic ductal dilatation. Next we go on, as you said, with with an endoscopic ultrasound. And, you know, endoscopic ultrasound is a great test. The problem with endoscopic ultrasound is that it's not completely specific to chronic pancreatitis. It's a very sensitive test. It picks up everything. But one of the issues we have with endoscopic ultrasound is that oftentimes we don't know in the pancreas what's pathophysiologic and what's physiologic. So does age make some of these changes? So... Again, it can be challenging. There are at least two very validated scoring systems with endoscopic ultrasound to diagnose chronic pancreatitis, but you're not necessarily going to be able to make the diagnosis in all cases. And falling down figure one in that algorithm, the idea is that you do your cross-sectional imaging. If CT or MRI is consistent, then you're done. If, in fact, you don't have that, then you go along with the endoscopic ultrasound. If that's consistent, then you're done. If it's not consistent, then you have to go to the next step. And our next step was another cross-sectional image, which is a secretin-enhanced MRCP. And for those who aren't familiar with secretin, secretin causes bicarbonate to be released from the pancreatic ductal cells. And it does a really nice job in showing the pancreatic ductal system. And what we'd see is some side branch dilatation. We could see dilation of the main pancreatic duct. These are all things that we sometimes see in patients with chronic pancreatitis that can only be seen on a secretin-enhanced uh, MRCP. Uh, so that would be the next step in the in the algorithm. Again, you've got cross-sectional image, you've got your EUS, you've got your secretin-enhanced MRCP. And if those are all negative, and again, you still have the suspicion of chronic pancreatitis, that's when we would move forward with uh, genetic testing. Mm-hmm. And, well, also there's, right, pancreatic histology, right? Just actually got a piece of right, the pancreas? Right. Why would you do that? Right. So we went back and forth with this because, really, there isn't a lot of data on this particular question, but do you go from a secret enhanced MRCP and go right to histology? Now, we're much better 
at getting pancreatic histology than we used to be with the development of endoscopic ultrasound and true cut biopsy. It's much safer than it used to be. We used to be very scared about doing pancreatic biopsies as opposed to liver biopsies. So we debated, you know, after that secret and enhanced MRCP, should one just go along and get the histology, quote unquote, the gold standard? And because it's still not as readily available as we would like, because there are issues with the histology as far as the patching issues seeing the pancreas and the interpretation, we said, let's go ahead and make sure that they do genetic testing, because if you have genetic testing that's positive, then you would be more comfortable going uh, forward with, with the histologic evaluation. Mm-hmm. So while we're on that topic of genetic testing, obviously there's a number of common genes associated with sort of idiopathic chronic pancreatitis and other forms of genetic pancreatitis. What are they, what are, at a minimum should patients be tested for? Well, as far as the specific genes, kind of the three classic genes we have are the PRSS1 mutation, which is the classic hereditary pancreatitis mutation. Then we have the SPINK1 mutation, which is also cause of hereditary pancreatitis. Those two genes affect the ASNR cell. And then the classic gene for pancreatic ductal cells is the CFTR mutation. And that is all pretty readily available. There's some new genes that are coming out. We have three more that we can test for, but at minimum, those should be the ones that, that we test for. And it's interesting, you mentioned the word idiopathic, and the genetic testing development over the last 20 years has really been incredible in our ability to determine the pathophysiology of these diseases. When I, when I was in medical school 25 years ago, for example, every kid who had pancreatitis, it was deemed to be a viral disease. That was the etiology, and we now know that that was completely rough. Right. It was completely off. It's not mumps. It's probably genetics, and we're seeing that more in kids, and we're seeing it you know, in a lot of adults as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So the term idiopathic is maybe what we use before we get the genetic testing, but then often it's no longer idiopathic is what I'm, what I'm kind of hearing from you. Now, let's just turn our attention now a little bit to, you know, exocrine insufficiency, because the guidelines make a point of distinguishing chronic pancreatitis from exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. And obviously the two often go hand in hand, but they also may not go hand in hand. One may not have architectural distortion or classic chronic pancreatitis, but still have exocrine insufficiency. So just talk to us a little bit about the the two and how should we be testing for exocrine insufficiency? Should we be going to the good old-fashioned fecal fat? Uh, Should we be testing stool elastase? Tell us about what uh, what our listeners should be thinking about there. Yeah, it's a great question. The vast majority of patients with chronic pancreatitis, based on a new definition, are not going to have pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's very, very rare to have pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. So it's like 90% of the gland destruction to have that? Right. That... That's the classic teaching that most of the gland has to be destroyed before you develop insufficiency. If someone does have pancreatic insufficiency, chances are that under this new mechanistic definition, chances are that probably they do have some degree of, of chronic pancreatitis. But again, in patients with chronic pancreatitis, it's unusual for them to have pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. And that played into our whole question of how do you test for this? Because what we were worried about was that patients would come and they would get tested for pancreatic exocrine insufficiency with a suspicion of chronic pancreatitis. They wouldn't have it, and it's likely that they wouldn't have it in most patients with chronic pancreatitis, and then the disease would be excluded. So we really wanted to make sure that this was not necessarily an exclusionary test for patients who suspected had chronic pancreatitis. And then you talked about the ways we test for pancreatic insufficiency, and when we think about that, we think about both direct and indirect tests. So the ones you mentioned are indirect pancreatic function tests, which is a spot fecal fat, which is not a good test. It just measures 
a one-time fat sample. And then the fecal elastase is fairly good, but again, that's an indirect measure, and it depends a lot on bowel transit issues and volume of the pancreas, et cetera. So that's not a great test as well. The best test to really diagnose pancreatic insufficiency is a direct pancreatic function test. And fortunately, we have one with secretin that can be done fairly easily endoscopically in which a dose of intravenous secretin is given and then the duodenal bicarbonate concentration is then measured. And so that's probably the best way to do it. Certainly, you can do the fecal, uh, fecal elastase test, which is fairly good, but it's not the gold standard I would use. And I think if you're having a hard time determining whether or not a patient has uh, extra insufficiency, you want to use that gold standard endoscopic test. So it just seems so common, though, that people do check elastase, really, for sort of first line. I don't know that I personally see a whole lot of people going to the direct test, although what I'm hearing is they really should be. You know, maybe at specialized centers like yours or mine, a lot of people go for the direct test. But for people that aren't in specialized centers or don't have easy access to that, should are you saying they should have access to that or basically well, just need to think about the elastase and its low accuracy? Yeah, I think that your latter point is, is correct. You know, what we want to avoid is patients being falsely labeled with pancreatic excrement insufficiency. And it's really something that can be damaging because, again, the, the, to treat that, pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy is very expensive for patients. And there's a lot of different reasons why patients can have a falsely low fecal elastase test. Again, it's a sensitive test. It's not very specific. And so, again, in the context of chronic pancreatitis, we really want to make sure that we're not just labeling people with this disease if they have a one-time low fecal elastase. And the guideline also points out that, you know, the threshold that's used could make a difference too. So, you know, if, if 200 uh, what micrograms per gram of stool is used rather than 100, then maybe we're going to catch more people than we should. Can you just talk a little bit about that and what people should know about sure. in terms of how their labs are defining a low uh, elastase? Sure, yeah. I mean, absolutely, your, your point's well taken. It's important to know exactly how your lab defines it, just as is with, with serum lipase levels, because the lipase levels can vary from, from center to center. But, yeah, I mean, again, if you lower the threshold to diagnose pancreatic insufficiency down from 200 to 100, you're obviously going to have more specificity but less sensitivity. And so the guidelines basically really try to de-emphasize that role of the elastase. We didn't really put it in the recommendation. It was more of a key concept. And, and again, we, we really try to not make pancreatic insufficiency testing a part of the diagnostic algorithm for, for CP. Okay, let's move along. And so we've been talking about what is the definition and how do we diagnose this. Let's say, you know, we've got to the point where we believe somebody has pancreatitis. So the next question is, what's causing it? What could be leading to it? And so the guidelines introduced, or at least for me it was new, I, I had not heard of the TIGER-O system. Maybe I haven't been involved in chronic pancreatitis for a while, but maybe you can tell us what is the TIGER-O system and uh, what do the guidelines suggest about its application? Well, Brennan, I'm, I'm glad you're wading in in the chronic pancreatitis realm. This is good. Uh, <laughs> The tiger classification system was developed by Dave Whitcomb at the University of uh, Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Dave's the senior author on these guidelines and really the go-to guy for chronic pancreatitis. And this is just a way to categorize your thinking about why patients have chronic pancreatitis. Again, we always worry about toxic metabolic. And if I had a dollar for every time one of my patients, however, was told that they're a heavy alcohol drinker when they have chronic pancreatitis, when they don't drink any alcohol, again, I would be a rich man. So... It's really important, I think, to have this classification system because it de-emphasizes, again, the role of toxic metabolic. Yes, that's very important. A lot of patients will have that as a cause. 
but there are other reasons in there. So, for example, another toxic metabolic, the T of the Tiger O classification system, you have alcohol, but you also have smoking. And we know that smoking is really a risk factor for, for chronic pancreatitis, independent of alcohol use. There's also things like hypertriglyceridemia. There's certain medications. There's things like chronic kidney disease and hypercalcemia. So all these things are part of that kind of the T of the, of the Tiger. Um, and then you've got idiopathic, which we don't like to use, and we're getting less and less reliant on that, but you have early and late onset idiopathic. And then the G stands for genetic causes, which we, you know, have already covered a bit. And as time goes on, we're learning more and more about the genetics and getting more and more of those identified and able to be tested for. The A stands for, the T-I-G-A-R, uh, stands for autoimmune. So autoimmune pancreatitis, both type 1 and type 2, is something that, you know, we're more and more being able to identify R is recurrent acute or severe acute pancreatitis. So we know the patients who have these attacks or have one severe attack can go on to have chronic pancreatitis. And then the O just stands for obstructive of any cause. We always worry about pancreatic malignancy, but there's other things like pancreas divisum and ampullary stenosis and calcifications that can also lead to chronic pancreatitis. So, um, so that's the Tiger O classification. And again, I think it just really standardized the way to think about the different etiologies uh, that are important in uh, causing this disease. All right. So for the listeners trying to figure out how we're spelling tiger now, this is an alternative spelling of tiger, T-I-G-A-R-O. Yes. So that was toxic yes. metabolic. That was the T. Idiopathic is I. Genetic is G. Uh, autoimmune is A. And recurrent acute or severe pancreatitis is the R. Then throw in the O for obstructive. All righty. Very good. So let's move ahead then and talk a little bit about some treatment concepts. In particular, pain. I mean, that's really the issue is how do we manage pain? I mean, there's some obvious advice, like probably should stop smoking. If you're smoking, I know not everyone's going to want to stop, but maybe stop drinking. I think those are obvious and important pieces of advice. But setting aside those very important lifestyle modifications, when we start talking about pain management, that's really what it comes down to. And, and we're in the middle of an opioid epidemic, so obviously we're trying to find non-opioid alternatives. And let's just start with that because the guidelines, too, make a point about opioids. Uh, what is the latest thinking about use of opioids uh, with chronic pancreatitis? Like any painful disease, no matter what the etiology, we always try to avoid opiates, as you mentioned, for, for obvious reasons. However, Chronic pancreatitis is one of the most painful things we as gastroenterologists are ever going to treat. And one of my patients has described how they're treated in the era of this opiate epidemic as an opiate refugee. And what they say is that, you know, just because I'm someone who, who needs opiates does not make me a bad person or an addict, et cetera. So I think it's important for the membership to know that although none of us like to prescribe opiates and none of us like we're very cautious about that, it's okay to prescribe opiates if you have gone ahead and ruled out and tried all other possible ways to treat the pain. So along those lines, alcohol and tobacco use, if it's a toxin, uh, mediated process, yes, go ahead and do that. One of the things that has been advocated for treatment of pain and chronic pancreatitis has been pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy. And what we found was that there's just very, very little evidence, including uh, evidence in regards to randomized control trials, that this makes any difference. So although many of us try this, we can expect that this is not going to be very helpful for people. There has been antioxidant therapy trials done, and most have been 
negative studies, but there have been a few positive randomized controlled trials. So antioxidant therapies, usually including S-adenosyl methionine and vitamin C, selenium as well. You know, we talked about celiac plexus blocks. We know that celiac plexus neurolysis is an effective pain modality for patients with adenocarcinoma. The block where we don't use ethanol, instead use a steroid modality. Again, some evidence that this is helpful. It's not a very dangerous thing for patients. Again, the block, not the neurolysis. So we suggest potentially considering that to manage pain. And then, obviously, we're always looking for reversible endoscopic things that can be done. So if a patient has an easy-to-remove pancreatic duct stone or your center has the ability to do things like ESWAL or EHL to remove stones, then the data shows that we can do endoscopy first. But what it also shows is that if that fails or... Again, you don't feel that you have the ability to remove those stones. Surgical intervention in good randomized controlled trials does seem to have a more durable effect than does endoscopic therapy. So in the guidelines, we said, okay to try endoscopic therapy as a first line. If that doesn't work, you really should go to surgery. And that's both a drainage procedure, such as a Pousteau procedure, or a resection procedure. And as we get more and more comfortable with total pancreatectomy with ILD auto transplant, this should definitely be something that's thought of in patients who've got the indication to have a resection procedure for chronic pancreatitis. Most patients won't qualify, but again, this is something that certainly should be on the radar screen for, for patients facing surgery for chronic pancreatitis. So there's so many different options, some more effective than others, but really surgery we find is one of the most durable treatments in the right patients. So maybe you can tell us who is the ideal candidate for um, for pisto or or any surgical treatment for uh, chronic pancreatitis, who's the ideal patient? When we think about surgery, we think about whether or not they're going to benefit from a from a resection, take it out, or drainage. So, if they need a drainage procedure like a Pousseau, it's because you can clearly see that the duct is dilated upstream from an obstruction, whether it be a benign structure or a stone. This can't be taken care of endoscopically. These are patients who typically would be ideal for a drainage procedure. For a resection procedure, that's a, that's a whole other issue. So patients should be considered for resection procedures really only as a last resort because once you do that, you can't take it back. The best patients who benefit from resection procedures are those who are not on opiates on a chronic basis, so maybe have flares of pain, what we call type, excuse me, what we call amin-type a pain, which is pain that kind of waxes and wanes. Patients who have chronic severe pain, oftentimes requiring chronic narcotics, they do not do well with resection procedures because they have a centrally mediated pain syndrome. They have neuropathy that will not benefit from uh, resection. So those are the absolute worst patients to do this on. Someone who's older, who's had disease for many years, who has a toxic etiology most likely, and is on chronic opiates. The patients who do the best with resection procedures are patients with chronic pancreatitis whose pain waxes and wanes, who generally have a genetic etiology and are not on opiates and have had pain symptoms usually for less than about five years. All right. Now, I want to end with where the guidelines end, and that's the use of pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, which we talked about before. You mentioned this in passing, that it really doesn't help for pain which is, for me, a change because when I was a fellow, we used it all the time for pain. But the data don't suggest that it helps for pain, but certainly it can help for insufficient, excrement insufficiency. So just in a, in a few brief minutes, maybe tell us what are the best practices these days for using uh, enzyme replacement therapy? So the most important thing is to establish the diagnosis, I think, that we talked about uh, before. So you really want to, if you can, get the direct pancreatic function test. That would be the gold standard way to do it. The other thing that we see that 
a lot of clinicians do that is not adequate is they underdose the pancreatic enzyme. So if someone has the need for enzymes, you've really got to get the units of lipase anywhere from 200 to 3,000 units a day. It's really, really important that you don't underdiagnose uh, these patients. So if you're going to treat this, it's really, really important that you get them on the on the proper dose. There's really very little in the way of side effects. Again, they're very expensive, but other than that, there's not a lot of clinical side effects. The other thing that is important to do is to make sure they don't have any other vitamin or mineral deficiencies. So the classic ADEC vitamins A, D, E, and K, it's important to test for those, as well as zinc, because that can be depleted in excrement insufficiency. We didn't have enough evidence to make recommendations in regards to bone health uh, as far as screening and treatment of bone health, but that's something I think is a key concept that's very, very important that you also think about patients' bone health, especially those who have other reasons to be osteoporotic or osteopenic. Well, we've done a whirlwind tour through a uh, expansive guideline, and uh, I want to thank you for not only your time today uh, on the podcast, but for all of your work on behalf of the journal and on behalf of the college, along with all of your co-authors, for putting together a very informative and important guideline. Vernon, thanks for having me again. I appreciate you citing the co-authors because they were amazing. Well, thank you again. And on behalf of my co-editor-in-chief, Brian Lacey, this is Brennan Spiegel signing off for this month's podcast. We'll see you next time around.